Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is the second installment of our um, conversation of musicals uh, on uh, this podcast you're listening to, Wet Hot American Podcast. And uh, I'm Justin Runge. And I am Zane Reeves, and we were born with the gift of laughter and a sense that the world is mad. <laughs> My Scaramouche reference for the I for think the you afternoon. should have probably come with a Brigadoon reference uh, after last podcast. You maybe could have <laughs> You maybe could have, uh, I don't, paid for your I, sense. Well, the thing is, like, it's sort of like the problem of where do you punch it up in the third verse mm. after, you know, make, like, really, I, the only where I, where, only place I can go with that is somewhere like, I, I don't know, fuck up Brigadoon? I mean, really, that's about the only place I can take that. Or, yeah, just something involving. Oh, the pain that is obviously deep in the wells of your soul. I, yeah, but I, I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm not revealing that here, but it, it is raw. Uh, so, let's see here. Something that we didn't get around to at all last time mm-hmm. was a discussion of uh, – the medium of television and how its approach to the musical. Yeah, you know, we refer to ourselves as a film blog, but I think uh, any anywhere the the um, you know motion pictures and, uh, and and that lives, I think, falls into our uh, falls into our parameters. So, um, I, and I think that the, especially the the musical as it's manifested itself in television has been a really strange beast, uh, and uh, we have a lot of examples. I think. Uh, more often than not, of of the failure of the form uh, and the transition of mediums. So. Yeah, there was a very spectacular one. Uh, I think it was last year or the year before. With, ah, it might have been two years ago. I think two thousand two thousand seven with uh, Viva Laughlin. You can never know what it's like. Your blood like winter freezes just like ice, and there's the cold and lonely light that shines from you. You wind up like the wreck you hide behind that mask you use. I had heard about, but did not watch anything on that until uh, you mentioned uh, that you wanted to discuss it, and right. I uh, braved uh, the uh, Sympathy for the Devil clip, and uh, I'm still standing. Yes. Uh, you mean the, uh, <laughs> the, the, escal- the escalator choreography and the uh... – well, I remember, too, the advertisements for that show um, didn't really uh, – weren't really forth – coming with details <laughs> um, as if the the, uh, the the studio but and the well, company... What a weird little area they were going to get into. With yeah, that. I think they maybe already knew uh, what the fuck do we have here? Um, and I think Hugh Jackman maybe knew too because uh, all of the ads uh, leading up to its uh, premiere kind of had Jackman front and center and I think when he sort of realized what he had gotten involved in, he said, do you think you can maybe work me out of this? Uh, to his credit, though, he was uh, – I mean he brought the panache to what I saw of that. Yes, yes. Like, that was easily the – you know, the, his his bit for Sympathy of the Devil is overplayed and obvious as that song is. Uh, he uh, he had the energy. He was mm-hmm. willing to sell it. It's just everything around him was failing him. Yeah, I think so. Well, that's ja- that's Jackman usually. I have a lot of respect for the dude. Um, and uh, and he's got the musical chops too. Oh, I he's mean, terrific! Yeah, uh, he and that was one of the more enjoyable moments of the last last uh, Oscar telecast, as we talked about a, a month or two ago. Um, and his uh, and his uh, his duet with Anne Hathaway, and uh, uh, so I I enjoy seeing him on my television screen singing and dancing. Um, maybe just not with uh, 
incredibly hackneyed plot and odd uh, pop music uh, incorporation. Uh, it was sort of like trying to be a combination of like Ocean's Eleven and Moulin Rouge uh, mixed with a healthy, healthy dose of cop rock. You can lock me up, row away the key. Yeah, and then getting to Cop Rock, which I actually, uh, from the little bit of it I've seen, I just remember it was a, it was a failure whispered about but rarely seen mm-hmm. uh, in the early 90s. Yes. Uh, I, uh, but I have to say, I think that is several notches above uh, Viva Laughlin in terms of execution, particularly the point that you can't keep a good man uh-huh. down. Yeah. Uh, the, done in a very menacing way. It's like, wow, they actually managed to make the setting, which is not necessarily conducive to mm-hmm. musicals, the cop drama, and they found a way to to work that that wasn't too jarring. Yeah, there was maybe the the difference with cop rock is that they really um, yeah you you know what you watch Viva Laughlin clips online as you pretty much only can now, um, and you can just sort of uh, with the exception of Hugh Jackman, like you pointed out, it just seems to be a very half-assed affair. Um, and Cop Rock seemed to genuinely be prepared to tackle the, uh, the sort of challenge it had posed itself. It seemed, it seemed sort of very sincere in its effort. It, it, it was, uh, committed to the premise, of, mm-hmm. like to say in theater. Yes, so. exactly. Uh, and, uh, I, I just think maybe it was just too weird. It was too weird, and, uh, I think maybe... Maybe even ten years later, it might have had a home mm-hmm. on something like FX. Yes, uh, because there, there are things oh, yeah. that could. Because uh, I don't know that Mad Men would have gotten, uh, or certainly it would have been watered down to where they would have had to kind of make some of the references yeah, less specific. It would have been like a who knows, a multi-camera drama or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, th- can you not? Can you make this Draper guy a little more likable? <laughs> can he smile more? <laughs> More flashbacks, more flashbacks. Um, so that's interesting. I actually, um, I, 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 this hadn't even, I hadn't even really thought about this um, until now. But last night, uh, I was kind of taking a trip down memory lane and, and listening to some, uh, to some music online. And uh, this doesn't end badly, does it? Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> the, the the tears were good tears. Okay. Uh, but um, I was so I was I was sort of plumbing the depths of my '90s history and um, and kind of ended up uh, remembering this television show that was on Nickelodeon. Uh, do you remember Snick? Uh, I, 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 I I do. I do um, and one of the original programs on Snick was like this half an hour musical sketch comedy show called Roundhouse. Now, Roundhouse, I heard of the head friends watched it, but uh, so you caught up with some of that. So tell me about that. Yeah, uh, it was, I, I just had forgotten how sort of tight everything was. Um, it, I was surprised to find out that they did four seasons of 12 episodes each um, and 48 shows of that. It seemed, it's, it's really 30 minutes of fast pace. And, and, and for a children's program, pretty snappy uh, programming. Um, uh, the musical numbers are, uh, are high energy and it's got a great sense of humor about it. And, um, 
and I could all of a sudden sort of remembering, uh, remembering that, and and sort of the the uh, influence it had on my life at the time. You know, I think it got me excited so myself. That would have been around to... the same time that Animaniacs was something that we all talked about. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was just uh, kind of interesting to me to see this sort of like really. Um, Really uh, dynamic and and vibrant. That one of the YouTube clips or one of the YouTube comments on the page was uh, from someone who admitted that they were born in 1989. So they they it might have been before their time, but they said something about they loved the the, the colors, the excitement, and the funk of the 90s. Uh, I. There was not a lot of funk in the 90s. I, I was there. Uh, that, that is a hollow lie. Uh, no, they're, they're, uh, someone might have brought the noise, but no one brought the funk. Right. Fabian uh, <laughs> um, let us down on that. I know. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, and then some other things I, wanted, I felt like we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about when we talked about uh, – musicals and, and television, mm-hmm. and again, skipping over things like Glenn Close doing South Pacific, which I didn't have any. Right. Uh, but there was uh, some episodic television that uh, kind of the one of the uh, go-to things now with a lot of shows love to do, mm-hmm. like the standalone uh, musical episode. Yes. And uh, some notable examples of that would be uh, one of my favorites and one that's a little less heralded. It's the musical episode of Oz. You creep into my heart and make my heart burn. You sneak into my mind and make my head ache. I don't know. Did you watch? Uh, I've, I've, I mean, I've seen some. I was not an Oz watcher. Um, not, and, a, it's uh, not an easy show to, to live with. No, um, and uh, and so I, I have a feeling that that episode became pretty deep in the in the series. It, it came deep into the series because, yeah, because uh, the, the, the thing I wanted to discuss and get anyone listening, the one of the primary relationships in the entire run of the show is between character named Beecher and a mm-hmm. character named Schellinger. Played the white by, supremacist. The, yeah, Schellinger is the white supremacist, played quite brilliantly by J.K. Simmons. Mm-hmm. He's great. He is. Uh, and uh, could do a whole show just of J.K. Simmons, character actor extraordinaire. Uh, anyway, those two, uh, over the course of nearly a decade or however long that show went on, take turns being Wile E. Coyote to the other one's roadrunner. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the amount of grief they cause each other and their families is uh, it's unspeakable. And they get a musical number together. It's an old disco song called The Last Duet. Uh. And it's just... I, I, I the, the only equivalent I could think of just for how astonishing it is for them to be doing that song would be if you had a production of Medea where Jason and Medea closed out with uh, I Will Survive. <laughs> that, I, it really is just like that level of uh, acrimony between two kids. That was one. Uh, once, uh, once more with feeling, the Buffy episode, I think, is pretty much now enshrined as like hmm. one of the great musicals of our generation. <laughs> um, I've got a theory. It could be Barney's. I've got a... Barney's. 
though, that that's not a standalone, that that's very much like embedded in what yeah. was going on with that season and everything was leading up to it and everything that came after it was informed yeah. by what was revealed. And it, I don't, it's, that's one that... Um, uh, the, the, the few that I can maybe think of, uh, I do remember Scrubs uh, having a musical, um, having, and, and I think they had a lot of fun with that. It's your hair, your nose, your chin, little face. You always need a hug, not to mention all the manly apple teenies that you chug. That you think I am your mentor just continues to perplex. And oh my God, stop telling me when you have nerdy sex. Um, and um, you can, yes, the, the, it is a popular, it, it's a popular sort of a breakaway moment for, uh, for, a lot of, um, for a lot of series these days. Um, I'm thinking, uh, again, of television series from my past that tried to incorporate uh, music. Um, and, uh, this might, this might be a little bit of a, of a tangent or, or a little bird, a bird walk. Um, but did, did you ever watch California Dreams when you were younger? No, no, I didn't. Surf dude with attitude, kind of moon, sky above and below, good vibration, feeling mellow. California Dreams was, I. Uh, it was essentially saved by the bell uh, on the beach with instruments. I think I know now why I didn't watch that. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I believe they sort of uh, – those two series were sort of uh, contemporaneous. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, the, the music in that show, they sort of always ended the episode with a, with a number. Um, so it's an update that of like sort the of beach blanket bingo a, a little bit, you know, like that, that final number would sort of – it would usually encapsulate the emotions that had been sort of coursing throughout the episode and, and found a, a way to sort of resolve um, what had come before. And, uh, and I don't, the, the, the women were dreamy uh, and, uh, and the dudes were cool and it was another thing to aspire to, only you would have to learn how to play the uh, guitar if you wanted to be like uh, one of the characters. And not just push up the sleeves on your sweater like Zach Morris. Um, <laughs> take a little more effort. Uh, but uh, I remember that. And then, and then later, I think they've they've continually tried to sort of bring this back to to teens and preteens. There was a series called S Club Seven for a while that I had a sort of like sick fascination with. Yeah, you got me completely trumped on even. There, you know, and and perhaps they should remain in the shoebox uh, under my bed. But uh, S Club Seven was uh, obviously seven Swedish kids, I think, living in Florida or something, who had been hired to be the musical entertainment for some sort of like tourist trap. Um, and they would uh, occasionally it felt like a combination of like uh, of like a, a teenage friends crossed with the banana splits. It was uh, it was a strange beast, and they had a few songs on the radio. I think it was sort of like a modern monkeys. Thing. Okay, yeah, um, and the, the monkeys were uh, quite influential in my early appreciation mm-hmm. of that. I, I actually because I, I got to that, I arrived to with to them and their TV show on VH1 back when VH1 catered to a different sure. kind of nostalgia than it does now. Yeah. Uh, than I did with, say, A Hard Day's Night. I, I'm sure that that's really wrong, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know that I want to be right. 
yeah, I. Uh... <laughs> it was a fun show, and 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 the monkeys were were fun, and it, mm-hmm. it definitely helped Neil Young and Neil Diamond pay some bills <laughs> right. for a while. <laughs> uh, well, and and then, you know the monkeys, like most of the groups, then in the. Uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, we're sort of attempting to make the transition to a, a psychedelic seriousness. Um, and uh, with the with monkeys, he, we get head. Right? Yeah, with, uh, co-scripted by Jack, Jack Nicholson. Nicholson. Right. Well, who you would never expect to ask uh, to, to sing or perform in any way. Or to give uh, you head. <laughs> <laughs> Zow. <laughs> Um, he did the R-rated edition of the uh, What Hot American podcast. Yeah, geez. Uh, and a show that's uh, been very faithful to the musical and that format uh, that keeps it pretty real is uh, South Park. Tonight, Stellar Productions presents the boy band of the decade. It's Finger Bang, live from Madison Square Garden. Trey Parker and Matt Stone have their degrees in musical composition um, from uh, where they graduate from. It was in uh, Colorado, Colorado yeah. Boulder. Um, and so I, I think that they they kind of can't help themselves. That's a, that's a part of how they entertain people. And um, and we talked about Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, Uncut. last week. Um, and it was that I, I felt like that was kind of the the culmination of their of their powers. Even though they've continued to be fantastic, I was you were always waiting to see what the what a movie was going to look like, and of course, it looked like a movie musical. Yes, and uh, yeah, like I, I have a copy of that at home. It, it, it's ten years down the line, I still enjoy it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I like Team America World Police, which again, a lot of really fun music in there. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I think that the, the South Park movie is probably the one that's going to be. At the the front of their CVs mm-hmm. for the rest of their days, I'm sure they're okay with that. You think uh, they're ever going to try to make the move to uh, South Park, the musical on stage? I would pay to see it. Mm-hmm. I, I I really would. Yeah. Uh, I, that I, considering some of the uh, the god awful stuff that they brought. I mean, if Legally Blonde can get, <laughs> if Shrek can get a stage production, <laughs> yeah. a musical, uh, if uh, Spider-Man. If Spider-Man can, although again, like in the right hands, that would be great. But I know that they didn't take that into the ridiculousness of Spider-Man. They probably actually had him like stop and like sing a love song to, yeah. to Mary yeah. Jane or something. It's uh, a, it's uh, that still has not uh, gone up yet, right? But Julie Taymor is is working on the production of Spider-Man the Musical. I, 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 all I can think of, even her work on The Lion King is ruined for me now by 30 Rock, just by Alec Baldwin's horrified reaction to watching the lion walk up <laughs> past him on the stairs. Uh, and it's like, yeah, that's silly. Uh, but uh, – and then I, I, I have to peddle one of my pet shows here uh, uh-huh. that did uh, has a lot of fun with music too. There was a – uh, season four, the season four finale of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, okay. visits a season three thing where we turn turns out that one of the characters is kind of a uh, savant musical genius. Like you, <laughs> uh, did, I, did you watch the show? I no, I I, okay. uh, I missed the boat, and uh, people have been sending me telegrams from uh, it, it, the boat ever since. In order to impress this coffee shop. Um, 
uh, waitress, uh, one of the characters, Charlie, puts on this elaborate musical that's really a proposal to the woman who they have a long history of he she hates him because he's awful and he stalks her and he's creepy. And uh, I think to quote her, I don't even understand how you can smell like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very sexually confused piece of work, the musical, mm. and uh, it, it deserves a place in the, the time capsule for ever and ever simply for allowing Danny DeVito to dress up like a troll and to sing the following line. You gotta pay the troll toll if you want to get into that boy's hole. You gotta pay the troll toll to get in. You want the baby boy's hole. You gotta pay the troll toll. You gotta pay the troll toll to get in. Troll toll. Uh, I, 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 if, if that line makes you laugh, then you should watch it. If it doesn't, then just by all means uh, stay away from it because it's only, only going to get worse. Oh, well, um... Crude, uh, crude humor musicals uh, have uh, have have long sort of uh, been bedfellows. Uh, we were talking also about uh, Monty Python's use of music, um, and and how both in television and film they've sort of done uh, they've done well with being being crass or controversial, uh, but with a snappy beat to it. Always look on the bright side of life. And again, uh, again, we were talking about that right before. I was like, so let me guess, you got into that right about the age of 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. He said, yes, we we both did. I I think it's maybe partly like a theater geek thing. Yeah, that's that's one thing. And also I think um, it seems to be a preteen, early teen um, boy thing to seek out as much off-the-wall, disgusting humor as you can find. Um, and, and, and British humor doesn't fit that bill, but for some reason, many boys think it will. Right. And so they get involved with it and either have their minds blown in good or bad ways. Um, well, I think what happens is everyone always expects British humor to be very uptight, and then it's usually, I mean, it's maybe a bit more sophisticated than uh, its American counterpart, but it, it, it's a good deal filthier yes. than most people would think. Yes. Um, and... Uh, yeah, uh, and I, of course, for me, for me, it was uh, the, the the thing that pulled the trigger for my discovery of Holy Grail, and then the music in that film, and uh, Meaning of Life, uh, Every Sperm is Sacred, in particular, uh, and uh, Life of Brian, and then all of the like the Hollywood Bowls stuff. Uh-huh. Was my dad just got tired of renting the movie Heather's for me <laughs> every Friday? Um, I, I was uh, like an OCD kid about that and finally you should really watch this and stick it he was sick of watching heathers with me so um where did heathers come from i i I think maybe hbo was playing it a lot at the time and something about it caught my eye and then i was again about 12 at the time and i didn't know they made movies like that i really Mm -hmm. was only a year or two removed from Thinking that the Beastmaster was the apex of, of cinema, <laughs> right? That uh, you know, you, I think that's a Renoir film, right? Right, right now on my Roku box, actually, for uh, my Netflix watch instantly queue, uh, the Beastmaster is sitting right alongside Mannequin, which uh, is a is a double feature I cannot get my girlfriend to buy in on. So that I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say there because that if. if Kim Cattrall, Andrew McCarthy, and um, Starship. 
and, and uh, Commandant Lassard <laughs> from uh, the Police Academy movies. Uh, G.W. Bailey, that's the yeah, actor's name. Yeah. He, he deserves to actually have his name, not just the character in this. Well, I think a, a, an interesting thing to also discuss in terms of, of um, music and movies that we didn't get to discuss last week or, or only got to discuss very basically was it's just the influence that um, that pop music and soundtracks can have on just the whole tone of a film and um, and, and what that film has to say. Uh, it can become as much a character as it can in a, in a legitimate it musical. It does, and I, and I think directors often uh, – as you said last week, um, some directors uh, just take the opportunity to show everybody their, their, their mixtape mastery. Um, and then some, uh, some directors also choose to um, – have musicians involved. Uh, I, I brought up in sort of a tongue-in-cheek manner Prince's Batman soundtrack. Uh, but but for me, I that, uh, that, so yeah. maybe that's where a little bit of that, that late 80s, early 90s funk that that person out of their generation uh, was uh, was putting their finger on comes from. You know, because it, it's it's a dark movie, but 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 Prince involved, man, uh, just kind of gives it a little bit, uh, kind of gives it a little bit of funk. And, and he continues to keep that uh, theme song off of the, any of his hits compilations. Yes, he does. Even though that was one of his biggest, it was uh, one of his biggest singles, hits. and it was uh, how nine-year-old white kids in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, were <laughs> made aware of the dude that uh, wrote "Pussy Control." Yeah, yep. uh, was through a Batman song. Soundtracks like uh, The Graduate with uh, yeah, the Simon, Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. I think, yeah, that was uh, maybe the, the most famous early example. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision I just sort of, you know, as a child, processed the music and and became kind of a Simon and Garfunkel um, computer, uh, and uh, and so uh, the fact that I came to the graduate really late in my life, not until my twenties, was a kind of an odd thing. But um, the the music for that is, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's like the third, you know, the, the sort of the third uh, step in that film. So, and uh, another one that's probably just as beloved if maybe wasn't as initially successful was uh, the Cat Stevens soundtrack for mm-hmm. Harold and Maud, mm-hmm. which uh, really does become sort of the, another main character in the film. Yeah. Trouble, Lord, trouble set me free I have seen your face and it's too much, too much for me It's so tonally crucial to that film as well. Um, because uh, Harold and Maude, of course, runs the risk of feeling um, sort of hopeless, uh, even though the Maude character is, is, is sort of so vibrant. I think Cat Stevens' music just has that edge of of, um, of sympathy, and it's cheesy, but sort of love that made it's, you it's feel... Not, it's not as cheesy as it's easy to make it out to be. It's a little uh, less... I mean, I, I think it's very easy to beat up on Cat Stevens and Jim Croce mm-hmm. and people like that, but... Uh, you know, there is a, a real definite sense of place in mm-hmm. those songs. That's another thing too. I think those I think those uh, soundtracks make it even easier for 
us as audiences today to really place ourselves in the in the moment as well. You know, you start to feel like you're a part of the time, even though you're some you know, sixteen year old right. kid watching Harold and Maude with a, you know, with his uh, with his cooler friends in the basement. Uh, I, I I I did not get to have that. I had my. Uh... I tried to introduce that film to my family, uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you exactly how that went. It was my a cousin of mine who uh, was in law school uh, with his girlfriend at the time. They were entertaining me while like my uh, aunt and uncle were in town, and they let me rent a movie. And they were just gonna, they were a good deal older than me. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's rent this really great black comedy called uh, Harold and Maude. And not being really adventurous moviegoers, when I said black comedy, mm-hmm. they took a very – they thought I was renting an Eddie Murphy <laughs> comedy. And the horror of his first suicide uh-huh. uh, attempt there, when they're like, what is this thing? Like, you said this was a black comedy. I'm like, yes, it's really dark. Like, I thought you meant, like, Martin Lawrence or something. Yeah, and, right. and it didn't go well from, from there. Uh, it was a very, very long – viewing of that film. Thus, we have the term urban, which has really uh, helped <laughs> helped us delineate genres in the uh, 21st century. Um, but I, I, another music uh, another music soundtrack that you brought up was uh, 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 the soundtrack for McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yes, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, really interesting anachronistic touches mm-hmm. to that film. Yeah. Uh, and uh, people fussing about their facial hair in a way that, like, men in the 70s would do. Uh, and then, yeah, you have this really bleak, uh, you know, Canadian folk singer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, singing the song that fit shockingly well. All the sisters of mercy, they are not departed or gone. Uh, I, I, I don't, I, it's hard to think of a, Music that's sadder than late '60s, early '70s, Leonard Cohen. Yeah, uh, there's, uh, I, I think, uh, a movie that maybe rivals that uh, that sort of emotional impact um, is um, is Midnight Cowboy. Oh my uh, And the Nelson soundtrack. Yeah, yeah the, the the Fred Neal song, Everybody's Talking, mm-hmm. and uh, Harry Nielsen just absolutely hit that out of the park. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. You know, and another the last picture show, the way it uses Hank Williams Sr. song. Mm-hmm. It, 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 like these, it's commenting on and in a lot of ways kind of slyly critiquing what yeah. we're seeing yeah. with these characters. And a little bit of Midnight Cowboy trivia. Uh, you know that Dylan's Lay Lady Lay was supposed to be used for that no, soundtrack, but they just uh, uh, it just didn't come together in time for it to be a part of the the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's kind of a shame, but I think everyone worked out okay. Yeah, and, and they held on to that track for the uh, Mrs. Mister and Mrs. Smith uh, <laughs> uh, it, final battle scene, which uh, that's I, a fair trade in a way that's not. I don't know, but well, yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and, uh, one, I think probably the first filmmaker to come along that consistently has used pop music, uh, throughout his films in a way that really does 
do everything we were talking about with B. Martin Scorsese. Of course, with the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones, um, uh, Dylan, uh, and then again, in, in old like 60s, uh, 50s, 60s, like doo-wop or brill building mm-hmm. pop, like the, his use of And Then He Kissed Me yeah. for the opening credits of Mean Streets. He, he kind of owns that song now because I think uh-huh. of home movies being played to that. And yeah. like, I've heard other movies use that song. And I'm like, these people must know nothing about cinema because mm-hmm. that song belongs to Scorsese. It's absolutely true, yeah. sad piano part right. is Goodfellas and that's right. when like everything's starting to go really badly uh-huh. he, yeah he definitely has a way of, of, of um, claiming music uh, what's the Rolling Stones song that I mean it's, it's been an album Give Me Shelter Give Me Shelter of course yeah. Um, it's become a bit of a joke now that he just like keeps he recycled mm-hmm. it two or three times. Yeah, I remember sitting in the theater at the Departed and going, "Really?" Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, it's pro- he probably understands that it's his. So it, it it is his, and again, like that that song is now a very easy shorthand for uh, like urban menace. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like this is oh these are this is where gangsters go and uh, right any slow slow motion shots of uh, of uh, you know some uh, some grim faced men walking through yeah. dimly lit bars uh, it's uh, an instant sort of cue uh, but uh, I guess in that same vein as well I would um, I would attempt to place uh, Quentin Tarantino Quentin, and his yes. soundtracks of course I mean Pulp Fiction was a was a very uh, big soundtrack. And yeah, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, uh, and a lot of it, they, they opened up uh, 70s AM radio for me mm-hmm. in a way that uh, Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, just didn't. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, and like things like this bubblegum pop, like uh, Steeler's Wheel. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, I think that still, maybe he's, uh, I was going to get to this in a moment, but uh, yeah, the, the use of Stuck in the Metal with You. and Right, right. Well, speak to that. I mean, I I think that um, uh, for those who haven't seen the movie and then do, um, if you haven't th- seen Reservoir Dogs at this point and you're over eighteen, I don't <laughs> know what to say for you. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know, there there's a, almost a sense of, uh, of of anger in having that song forever bloodied uh, because it's such this sort of um, and yet, and yet much like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you see virtually nothing. <laughs> it's mostly implied, but what's there is just wrenching. Yeah. Uh, he's also really good at introducing the tone of a film and the nature of the main, of uh, the protagonist uh, struggle in the intro to a song like it with Jackie Brown across 110th Street plays mm-hmm. while uh, J- uh, Pam Greer is on her way to yet another like flight as a stewardess. Yeah. And you know everything about her by the time that she's gone past a little like routine walk through the the airport terminal to get to her flight. I was the third brother of five doing whatever I had to do to survive. I'm not saying what I did was all right. Trying to break out of the ghetto was a day-to-day fight. Being down so 
uh, Kill Bill Volume One with the bang bang, my my baby shot me down. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then even uh, Death Proof has it like when it has that Jack Nietzsche mm-hmm. stuff playing over the beginning. You know instantly where you're at, where you're yeah. going to be going. Yeah, with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it reminds me, of course, and this is Quentin Tarantino's sort of uh, uh, reservoir for for influence. Um, I think of the uh, uh, Curtis Mayfield soundtrack to Superfly, um, and uh, he's that uh, Jackie Brown too. But, yes, but yes, but yeah, the, the, that's still uh, and yeah. The, the, the Mayfield soundtrack is probably the best example of a soundtrack that has a much greater resonance and sense of accomplishment than the film. At yes, right. Because uh, yeah, the, the Superfly itself is not completely unwatchable, but it's not really very good. No. And uh, it doesn't really even have, uh, like, I, I, get, I get off on black exploitation. that's a whole other podcast. But, yeah, that, um, that film is ugly to look at. Uh, it's ugly inside. And... Uh, it's just uh, very mercenary yeah. film, well, but the soundtrack is staggering. Seems like, uh, yeah, I mean, Curtis Mayfield to that movie is, is sort of the, the savior to the damned. Um, and uh, and uh, but no one would talk about it if it weren't for that. Soundtrack. No, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, but then uh, you have Isaac Hayes soundtrack to Shaft, Shaft as well, which I I think maybe the two sort of uh, match each other in stature. But, 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 yes, they do. I think the if you if you wanted a uh, beginning to end uh, experience with an album, the the Mayfield is the way to go. But mm-hmm. yeah, the the uh, Hayes uh, soundtrack for Shaft. Uh, vaulted him to superstardom, right. uh, helped raise the profile of Stack's vault. And, uh, yeah, and it also uh, prompted one of the you know first really kind of interesting cultural clashes with the Oscars, too, when you have mm-hmm. Isaac Hayes funking it up uh, <laughs> at, like, with, like, the whitest party on Earth. That really was the John Wayne, Bob Hope, Burt Lancaster yeah. era of uh-huh. the Oscars. I mean, I think, like, airport was up that year for everything <laughs> and Patton. Uh, so, yeah, to have this, you know, bald, uh, charismatic black dude in gold chains chain right, and right. a fog machine come out. <laughs> uh, I uh, would have been a really good night to have been Karen, uh, Karen Black. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chips? Damn right. Well, we wanted to also discuss some uh, some films uh, that we maybe wanted to put a little bit more focus on, um, and that we didn't get to last podcast. Uh, I I ended up, of course, taking way too much time talking about Mr. Holland's Opus. You can never take enough time to talk about. No, well, that's what I'm working on my dissertation on. Very right bathetic sort of film. Yeah. Um. So uh, I I thought that maybe I would move it into just um, from from bathos to extreme pathos with Dancer in the Dark, uh, which was directed by Lars von Trier and um, and uh, of course starring Bjork. I've seen it all. I have seen 
I, I, re, I watched Mr. Holland's opus so I could keep up with you on that conversation. I've seen Dancer in the Dark maybe close, uh, right when it came out on video, which may have mm-hmm. been like seven years ago, maybe? Yeah, maybe not that long but, ago. But yeah, a while ago. But anyway, point of that being like, I could not bring myself to rewatch that. Like, my uh, retrievable memory will just have to do. Yeah, I, uh, I I kept on sort of, um, because they do have it on uh, Watch Instantly for for Netflix, and I thought, well, that would be an easy way for me to just to just turn it on and spend some time, and I couldn't bring myself to, to play it. Um, not that it isn't a brilliant film. I, I think maybe we're speaking to the fact that it is it, 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 so it, effective. It just hits you... Uh, in a way, it, it gets past your defenses mm-hmm. and it hurts you yes. in a way that uh, while you're conscious of like this is a melodrama about on par with a Joan Crawford or Barbara Stanwyck or Betty mm-hmm. Davis vehicle. And it's kind of about, you know, yeah. like it, it's in that realm except it just it, it explodes it from inside. Yeah, I think it pushes it as, as most of the Dogma 95 films do, um, like Breaking the Waves or um, – Which is uh, – Shockingly similar in a lot of ways to yes. Dancer in the Dark. Um, so is Dogville. So is Dogville. Uh, it, it's the, these films want to um, want to explore deep, deep pain. Um, and I, I think where the fact that Dancer in the Dark is a musical really counterpoints that uh, sort of uh, remarkably is that for for the most part musicals are an escape from that. Um, and or attempt to to resolve it, but in this uh, movie, you know the 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 musical numbers and her escape into that sort of world does nothing to resolve the pain that's actually happening in her real life, um, and in fact it serves to be sort of an ironic um, an ironic sort of uh, sort of uh, you know it's. Yeah, no, agony. No, you know, it's, in a lot of ways, the film it reminded me of is a very stripped-down version of, say, Pennies from Heaven. Okay, the, yeah. uh, I haven't seen the original Bob Hoskins uh, version of that, the Dennis Potter. Mm-hmm. But I've seen the Steve Martin, Bernadette Peters. And again, using, you know, the, you know this escapist form. Right. Um, and in that case, it specifically used a lot of the songs from Yastere Rogers' film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in people in absolute desperation – and uh, but and the film was look was made to pattern itself after those films and it becomes this bitter commentary. But right. then Dancer and the Dark is uh, you know no uh, it, it, it looks like one of those early seventies uh, independent films where you can see mm-hmm. every pore yeah. on someone's face. Well, and it seems to to my memory it was shot on video. Yeah, I think it was shot on like, digital video, mm-hmm. or, uh, and you got. Uh, like Catherine Deneuve, who was yes. in uh, what was it the the Umbrellas of uh, uh, Scherenborg? That's right. Which was another really really major. That was her big uh, uh, breakout as a star, which yeah. was in a, a, a musical. Another uh, musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she's that's kind of used to canny effect, mm-hmm, right? And this, and, and I, I don't know that you, anyone would ever think to cast Catherine Deneuve as a. The, like a seamstress, a working class yeah. woman, right? But uh, that, that that deserves. Points. She, kind, she kind of she kind of can't uh, hold back the, the sort of uh, inherent glamour of her, right. <laughs> of her yeah. being. You know? Yeah, because when people say that kind of thing about Sophia Loren being the ageless sex god, it's like I, for me, I really see that as like Catherine Deneuve, mm-hmm. just someone. I would agree. Uh, but uh, yeah, and, and then you've got. I think another reason it's hard to get through that film is. The, the level of animosity you feel toward David Morris yeah. as a character, like 
it's one of the few times, again, it breaks through your sense of, like, I'm going to suspend my disbelief, and you actually mm-hmm. find yourself wishing harm yeah. on this person. Yeah, and and it makes the, the scene where everything sort of comes to a head, and for <sighs> people who haven't seen it, I won't say anything, but just so agonizing. Um, be, be, it, it's, it's such a sort of confluence of, of emotion for the viewer um, to try to figure out Exactly how they feel at that very moment, just as the characters are, is is brilliant. And then and then for us as viewers too, the musical numbers do manage to somehow sort of remove us from that. But we're, just like we're we're forced, the characters are forced to. We we sort of return to um, just all the pain. As that's a word that sort of you know yeah, flashes pain. It just, it, it's a film that. Uh, again, I, this line has been said about another film and meant differently, but I. I, th- I can't help to think about it with this. Like, I can never hurt that film the way it hurt me. <laughs> and in some ways, I, I have that lament with, with Lars about that. I, I say that like I've got him on my cell phone list. Uh, <laughs> but uh, goodness gracious, yeah. The, uh, and then uh, the last, I guess maybe 20, 25 minutes of that, where mm-hmm. it's mostly Bjork uh, in the slammer. Yeah. And uh, she's shown some real kindness by the, the Siobhan uh Fallon, the, right. the, the the nice, the, the kindly prison guard, but that 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 whole part of the film is just like steel wool on the nerve endings. Mm-hmm. It's just nothing but absolute bottomless sorrow. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, um, uh, bottomless sorrow, sorrow holds no holds <laughs> no sway here uh, on the film that you would like to. That's uh, yeah, just like whiplash inducing. Uh, <laughs> Polar opposite uh, kind of. I could find no uh, crafty segue for this. There, there, it doesn't need one. It, just, it really does need to have this jarring sort of tonal shift. Because um, I and you and you uh, watch this with me, and I'm also this would be my first chance to hear your reaction to the film. Uh, but the, uh, probably, if I had to uh, pick a musical as my favorite, it would be. Uh, a uh, mockumentary film uh, that is not Spinal Tap. Uh, it is not A Mighty Wind. Uh, it's not even Walk Hard. It's uh, 1994's Fear of a Black Hat. I'm the D-A-N-G-S-T-E-R Like Scarface, bitch, I'm a superstar Revered for all, though I am the villain Gain a more juice by the others I'm killing Profiling and styling Try to fly ride and the hoes just piling I make gangster money cause I'm gangster bold Fuck gangster bitches wearing gangster clothes Which I believe was made a little earlier But that's when it was released Because yeah. it came out at the same time as CB4 And got shelved because of that But um, it... Uh, is uh, it, the story structure is very similar to, to Spinal Tap. You mm-hmm. have the rise and fall and triumphant comeback of the gangster rap group NWH. I will not say what that stands for. <laughs> uh, you can look it up. So it has something to do with haberdashery. Yes, uh, haberdashery, and that's really all you need. That, that, that should be... Uh, <laughs> and then watching it on DVD with you, obviously there, there's some really... Maybe joking, but maybe kind of serious, bitter feelings about people who didn't get paid from this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They uh, they sort of even uh, break into uh, the movie as it's as it's running to say, by the way, we've got these other things going on. So if you feel like uh, you know, g- giving us some uh, giving us some of your hard earned dollars, please do that. www. Yeah, it, it's uh, and uh, I, for those guys, I feel like I've kind of done my part because. 
I did buy the DVD. Mm-hmm. I did buy the soundtrack. Yes. And now I'm taking up my time here to uh, pimp the film uh, to all of you. Uh, again, it's the story of uh, ice cold, tasty mm-hmm. taste, and tone death. And it manages to uh, – like I was talking about this with you earlier – other than really maybe the low-end theory and ultra-magnetic MCs, I can't think of any, like, major figures <laughs> from hip-hop from, like, about 86, 87 to yeah. 91, 92 that they don't touch on. Yeah. Like, they really and, – and it's not uh, – it seems really unfiltered. Like, you had people that were really clued in mm-hmm. to that world that were allowed to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, and and not have like a clueless studio executive go. You really need to have something for Chris Elliott to right. do here because uh, it, it just it's so uh, like honorably specific in its choices of like the music and what it like like Walk Hard, like Spinal Tap, like uh, Mighty Wind. Uh, there's a dual purpose to the song. They they both mock. Mm-hmm. Actually, in this case, probably the least mocking of it, but uh, they. Uh, uh, they're supposed to be funny. They're jokes, right. and then they're also they also work as just good, solid song craft. Yeah, they do. They do, uh, and and that's maybe the most um, the most uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, remarkable thing about the film is that it, it covers so much ground and, and manages to sort of uh, every uh, every sort of hip hop and rap form that they tackle. They they seem to do. Um, uh, pretty accurately, I, I think for me it was maybe it seemed to be because the the genres themselves uh, are already so sort of like in your face with their with their characteristics that um, uh, you maybe have to be a, a mook to not like understand how to parody uh, "Mama's Gonna Knock You Out," uh, but. Um, but they do it, I think, they, and they they invest themselves so much that it makes it really fun to see. You, for me, the thrill of the movie was sort of like work through it and try to find out like what's the next sort of uh, sort of uh, hip hop epoch they're going to tackle, and then they go, okay, they're going to do Marky Mark and the Funky Marky Bunch. Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Yeah, there's uh, Run DMC, there's De La Soul, PM Dawn, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, LL Cool J, uh, NWH, Ice Cube, Ice T. Uh, public Enemy again. Like I, I thought that, um, yeah, that uh, Ice Cold was a really good. And it was interesting that they made the the, the primary character. That was they didn't go the route of making the Easy E guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the main. Like they made the guy that's kind of philosophical in a really wrong way. <laughs> uh, the uh, the voice of the film. And uh, for me, the, the, the probably the. And I, 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 I don't know how you feel about this, but I don't think that – I mean I think, I think this all a lot to make light of, mostly with how rap music is marketed. Uh-huh. But I don't think that it was mocking in any really particularly vicious sense rap yeah, music artists, or the music yeah. itself. It seemed, it seemed to have too much affection because it did it so well. Yeah. Um, but where that kind of reached its apex for me was – the brief little shot it was a, a gangster's life ain't fun, mm-hmm. uh, which is you've got this really unconvincing uh, PSA announcement kind <laughs> of uh, video about like don't be a, a gangster kid, and it's sung by a bunch of dudes that are fully clothed in like suits and hot tubs <laughs> um, with the strippers, uh, and there's something going on underneath the water there that's probably very rude, <laughs> uh, and like there's like. You know, champagne and and uh, on ice and like I think there might be actual like diamonds and money and there in the mm-hmm. champagne buckets. Mm-hmm. But 
it, it like lines both like uh, I'm the god of thunder, make a move, I'll put you under, uh, kind of thing. But don't don't kid yourself, kid. Gangsta <laughs> life ain't fun. Uh, but yeah, so uh, fear of a black hat. Uh, I cannot stress. Buy the DVD. Don't rent it. It really makes those guys very unhappy, and you will not be able to enjoy their hectoring uh, on the the DVD. Uh, buy the soundtrack. Uh, if there's if their websites are still up and they're still offering like T-shirts or something, buy a T-shirt. Uh, but uh, they uh, they they created a, a comedy that I think will stand for a very long time, and a soundtrack that manages to. Uh, hold a mirror up to uh, hip hop society, and then win world's record for biggest mirror. To my <laughs> second thirty rock record. Now your new album is N.W.H. Fear of a Black Hat. Right, but see, actually, that shit was supposed to be N.W.H. Fear of a Black Hat, then subtitled "Don't Shoot Till You See the Whites." Of their eyes. Whose eyes? Okay, but that's that's Fear of a Black Hat for me. Yeah, and I think that's the podcast. Of course, we feel uh, still completely. Um, Completely guilty about the omission of some very important aspects. We, we, of... Yeah, I mean, uh, we've managed to not discuss uh, rock documentaries, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of uh, uh, major, major musicals. I, I think Gene Kelly has been uh, yep, left in that era. Uh, but uh, trapped in the closet in terms of long-form music videos and the works of Michel Gondry, yeah, and Spike and, Jones, and who knows? Perhaps uh, in the future, uh, after we've given ourselves some time to get the ringing out of our ears, we'll um, we'll again tackle these uh, these uh, pertinent topics. But uh, but for now, uh, I think uh, we'll leave you with probably one last slow jam. I don't know what that'll be. We'll, we'll figure it out in post, Justin. But okay. again, we're, we're very sorry if we left out any of your favorites. Uh, and uh, we'll, we will hopefully get to them again uh, in the uh, 10th anniversary for Criterion edition of Zane and Justin's podcast. But anyway, until that day, uh, this is Wet Hot American Podcast. And I am Zane Reeves. I'm Justin Reeves. And we thank you for your time. And thank you for listening to us. This has been part two of our discussion on movie musicals. We'll see you next time.